The 2021 election campaign is getting underway, and so far, it's already been a bit of a beefy one. It was only a few weeks ago we'd all declared this a pretty boring election year. Because despite a scandalous year that would make New Labour blush, the SNP was going to romp home without too much trouble. All of that might still be true, of course. But the presence of a new independence party on the scene might just raise the stakes a bit. Of course, what matters in this election isn't just the things that people, myself included, whine about on Twitter. Politicians and prospective politicians need to put their ideas to us, the electorate. My name's Kat Boyd and I will be hosting a new weekly live politics show for Contour on the Scottish Parliament elections 2021, where we'll be taking the issues that matter direct to those who say they plan to do something about them. We'll be streaming our first episode live in conjunction with Independence Live on YouTube and Facebook on Wednesday the 14th of April at 7pm. I really hope you can join us for a politics show that won't duck the hard questions. Hi folks, David Jameson here, uh, one half of Contacast. Uh, the other half, Cat Boyd, uh, is heading up our election coverage uh, for the Scottish election. So sadly, she won't be with us for uh, the next few weeks and you've been left with me, the poor relation. But I will try and... Uh, make good uh, that shortage by bringing in some interesting guests. Today we have Catherine Liu, who is uh, a professor of film and media at uh, University of California, Irvin, um, the author of many interesting books and articles, but most especially Virtual Hoarders, The Case Against the PMC, the Professional Managerial Class, a book that's causing a lot of waves uh, in America and elsewhere, and its discussion of contemporary well, class and the contemporary left, the relationship between social class and the contemporary left. So first of all, Catherine, thanks very much for, uh, for, uh, for coming in on this call from abroad. Thank you. Um, I am very pleased to be here. And uh, to help me in this discussion on this book is James Foley, who reviewed uh, the book for conta.co.uk. You can go and read his review of the book uh, there. Uh, James, thanks for being cat for the week. I feel like I'm going to be an entirely inadequate replacement, David, but I'll do my best. <laughs> uh, great stuff. Catherine, uh, let me introduce the, the issues in your book for, I suppose, a Scottish and a British audience, because at the moment, it's quite a... Uh, it's, it's, it's a debate that's happening a lot in the American left, from what I can see from over here. It's got a lot of tongues wagging. Um, but the, the context, I suppose, is kind of an American context in the sense that, um, like with Corbynism in Britain, you in America are in the aftermath of the, the Bernie Sanders experiment and the mass movement you know, that, that came in the wake of, of Bernie Sanders and his challenge uh, to be the Democratic nominee. And as sometimes happens in the aftermath of a mass movement, there is a more or less healthy debate about the contours of the movement, what went right, what went wrong, and so on. And it seems to me that this is part of quite a healthy debate um, where we are discussing what are, the, what are the class forces involved in the contemporary left? What are perhaps some of the limitations in the reach of the left into wider parts of 
of the population. Do you think that that's the backdrop to, to the argument you're making here? Where do you see this argument as coming from? Um, that is um, a really good point, and it is the backdrop, partially because I was, I was able to make the argument because Bernie Sanders in 2016 and 2020 showed that socialist ideas could find a mass following in the United States. Um, despite all the tendencies of socialist and left organizations, I mean, James's review was really funny about just his historical point of view of how eccentrics, you know, sort of would join the socialist left because they thought this was the place where they could express themselves in the UK in the early part of the 20th century. But um, I had seen the left sort of be completely decimated by Reagan and then, you know, um, Clinton and the neoliberals. And um, what it had degenerated to, in my view, was a kind of niche um, subcultural um, attitude towards politi left politics. And when Bernie Sanders articulated so powerfully in 2016 and 2020 the need for universal programs, the need for universal solidarity. I really thought like the the my commitments, my political commitments, my commitment to a kind of universal, the universal power of capitalism and the commodity form were being articulated at a very, very, you know, popular mass level. And it was compelling to millions and millions of Americans. So that was really fantastic. But in the wake of um, his defeat and then Biden's rise to power, which actually at this point, I have to say, is very, he's done very encouraging things, Biden. So let's just put that aside for a moment, even though, you know, I don't, the Democratic Party to me is a completely um, corrupt and um, pointless institution at this point. But um, so what ha so um, what happened was what I think happens when the left sees itself, you know, set back is that because it's so dominated by the professional managerial class cultural ethos, it, it doubles down on um, um, niche causes and it doubles down. I'm not even going to say identity politics because I've realized that identity politics is not politics. It's identity protocols. So it, I, I, it doubles down on identity protocols and it loses its way. It loses its way because it's so dominated by um, aspirational professional managerial class people, um, white collar workers, and because and, and college graduates. Because there is a huge divide now in the United States between those who have gone to elite liberal arts or private colleges, or you know more prestigious public colleges like universities like Berkeley or. To a sense, to a lesser degree, you see Irvine, where I teach, because it's much more um, popular in nature. I would say less exclusive, like um, the exclusive, the most exclusive colleges now are churning out these aspirational PMC members who are enforcing a code that is anti-Marxist, that is anti-socialist, anti-materialist, and anti-class analysis. So some of the you know, after 50 years of not being able to talk about class since 1968 and only being able to talk about identity, our actual ability to do class analysis in the United States is so atrophied. Like one of the funnier um, 
critiques of me in my book is that like here she is pretending to be poor Catherine Luke pretending to be poor because talking about class and I was like first of all I never pretended to be poor and second of all are you so addled by identity politics that you feel like only poor people can talk about class like only women can talk about gender no the dynamic of class analysis is something that Marx brought into the foreground of historical materialism, as you guys know, and he was not, he was poor, but he was from a petty bourgeois family. So, um, and what he saw and what, Eng and Engels was not poor, and what he and Engels saw in happening in Northern England was filtered through class analysis. It, they were not like woke saying only workers can talk for themselves. They saw what the working day was doing to the British working class. And so um, I'm not saying like um, I have that kind of insight that they did, but I do feel like I am continuing a legacy because um, there was a huge truncation in my education, my growing up, in terms of class analysis. And now, because in many ways I'm also protected by tenure, I'm protected by age, I'm protected by gender, and because I'm an Asian American, I feel like I need to talk about this. And it will make me vulnerable to all these sorts of, you know, critiques, whatever, these low-grade low, low grade critiques. But um, I feel like we have to insist upon the class dynamic and the notion of class struggle and class contradiction as the motor of history. And we've seen that class war that the PMC has waged against the working classes has been the motor of history in terms of the neoliberal turn and the destruction of all the social democratic supports um, that were put in place in the United States after the Second World War. I mean, I know the situation is different in the UK and EU, so you should ask me questions and I'll try to um, respond. But one of the things I think, one of the ways in which I thought about um, the professional managerial class as an intermediate class that the Ehrenreichs talk about in 1977, intermediate between the capitalists and the working class, and they said they're very ambivalent about the working class, but they're hostile to capitalism. This is 1977. The PMC is no longer hostile to capitalism It and capital. It has totally assumed the point of view and the interests of the capitalists, and it is more and more hostile, not ambivalent. It's purely hostile to the working class. So I, I want to go on and ask you for a kind of a, a slightly deeper definition of the PMC and how you see that is different from other types of, um, you know, middle classes that has been understand, understood historically in capitalism. Before we get there, I just wanted to acknowledge the really good point you make about, because um, I get this as well, you know, people say, uh well you you say that you're on the side of like working class politics or class politics or something like that and yet you are middle class so they, they even now think that class politics is a form of identity politics they think that you're making claims on the basis of your own identity that's how you know pervasive that political form has become but on on the pmc i mean i'll, I'll tell you where i came from on uh, this question which is maybe a slightly unhelpful place which is one of kind of uh anti-americanism which is I thought when I heard the phrase PMC, I thought professional managerial class, that is a phrase for middle class because Americans don't have a phrase for middle class. So I remember years ago, I was watching um, one of Michael Moore's documentaries um, about Flint. 
And he talked about how his dad, who was a car worker, was middle class, a member of the American middle class. And I remember thinking that he's classically working class. He's a car worker. So in America, traditionally, better off parts of the working class were called the middle class. And there wasn't really a phrase for professionals, for managers, for bureaucrats, for cultural, you know, higher up cultural workers and things like that. So, I mean, is, it does the phrase PMC simply fill that gap in, in American language? Can you hear me now? Yep. So it might, but it really is distinguished by the fact that the United States exported its notion of higher education to the world after World War II. And it's it doubled down on the British notion of meritocracy and created it as a global hegemon. But let me go back a little bit. And so I think that's what distinguishes the PMC. It is hegemonic and imperialist. But... Um, the next, but to go back a little bit to say, you know, is it just another term for the middle class? No, it's really formulated along the lines of the college credential or the professional credential. Because you can have a, you could have, like in Flint, a, a blue collar worker who made, let's say, the equivalent of $100,000 a year. They were the labor aristocrats, right? But they didn't have a college education. So in that sense, they were déclassé still. And that gap now has grown exponentially between those who are college educated and those who are non-college educated. So at the turn of the century in the United States, 19th to 20th, you know, that's how old I am, the turn of the last century, um, the PMC made up a tiny, tiny part of the American population. Let's say they were doctors, lawyers, or um, even in intelligentsia, right, who had gone to college. I would say like numbers that, you know, left-wing sociologists like C. Wright Mills um, showed were they, they made up 3% of the American population. As American capitalism has gotten more complex, as it needs managers and professionals more, that class has expanded exponentially. Today, it occupies about 25% of, um, of the workforce, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The way that I like to define this class is it's a class which, allow, which has jobs that require the college credential and it is a class in which your work is not physical. Nothing you do has to do with your body. Or, um, And I know that this is very commonsensical for European leftists, but it's not in the United States. So even if you made like $100,000 a year as an air condition repairman, which is incredibly dangerous and also very, you know, work inten physically intensive in, in California, at least, um, you are not a member of the PMC. And I think that, that um, takes a lot of um, confusion out of the class um, itself. So a lot of um, classical Marxists said to the Ehrenreichs, this is just the petty bourgeoisie. This is just petit bourgeois. But the petit bourgeois are also, you know, intermediate classes. So the petit bourgeois, I would say, in the United States are like small business owners, farmers, um, people who were self-employed. This is like the myth of the American yeoman, right? That class is also in real trouble because you have all these big box stores moving in. The mom and pop shops are closing down. You know, the family farm is being sold to Archer Daniels Midland because of, you know, the monopoly on GMO seeds. That mythical yeoman petit bourgeois class in America is in trouble and shrinking. The PMC is more and more powerful, and it is an intermediate class that is that does not own enough capital to live on its rent, on its interest, but it completely identifies with financialization 
and um, speculation. So it's its most elite sex segment also is not attached to any notion of place. Like this is also a feature of the class is that you can take your job and go anywhere and do it. So the pandemic is really brought out this, you know, stark difference between the people who actually work in a place, trapped in a place, have to be confronting other people and people like me who work in front of a computer. Somebody emailed me and said they thought it was the email jobs, like people who can work by email. And, you know, I'm doing distance teaching, but I also handle a lot of emails. So this class really is protected from a number of things that um, really affect the worker in a really profound way and damage the worker sort of in the classical Marxist sense of exploitation. So, which is not to say that PMC work does not damage you. It damages you psychologically, ideologically, and politically. But, um, but it is a class that is very segment that might be stratified now because at the lower end of it are unionized credential workers like the National Nurses Union. They're much more radical than the top level of the PMC or teachers unions, for example. You know, uneven levels of progressiveness, but teachers came out and went on strike two or three years ago in a very, very powerful way. And so they are... Um, they are at the lower end of the PMC, but they also their work requires a credential. Now, with with nurses though, they are physically, you know, they they have to lift patients, so they're in this very like um you know liminal position with regard to the class difference. So that's what I would say is another definition of the PMC that I would like to cite in that I find very um useful because C. Wright Mills also talks about, and Krakauer too, talks about how proud the lower level clerks were in Weimar Germany and in post-war America because they had, um, they could work in offices. And even though they were at the very bottom of large bureaucracies, these clerks and these office workers could, and, and they made low salaries, they, they could enjoy the um, amenities of office work. So the PMC, contemporary PMC today, I would say, are people who can work in air conditioning. And they manage, part of their job is to manage other people. So I think it's really important to have that, to separate out the professional, the managerial, and the question of class, and to say that this class is distinctive within um, American imperialism because American higher education has become a you know, trillion dollar industry. Everyone pursues prestige. No social democratic country like, well, England, I'm not, I'm gonna put it aside. But so for instance, in Germany, because the universities are virtually free, there is no hierarchy of prestige. Germans are less, um, go to college now at an instance less than in the United States, but it's because they have a really um, healthy functioning te technical school and apprenticeship program for highly skilled craftspeople and to train people in industrial production. So we don't have that anymore at all in the United States, except for, you know, large public universities like the ones, the one that I work for. But, um, We've exported this model of prestige abroad, and so it's no um, accident that um, the sort of Asian elite all want to come to the United States and go to college. I think they do with the UK too, because the UK has, you know, Not is exporting college. prestige. Yeah, 
is exporting its prestige um, um, industry higher of a higher education to the rest of the world. But this so this pursuit of prestige, this pursuit of the credential that has become more and more of a zero sum game, but that supposedly will guarantee you a place in this class. This is a very this is a very particular American um, export that has been the imprimatur of American imperialism since the world, Second World War. So you have all these guys from Harvard or Chicago go around to Chile, and they try, and they after Allende is put down, and they try to put in, and they put in austerity and neoliberalism there. But the Chile, the right wing Chileans are really proud because they're like they're from the University of Chicago, they're from Harvard, they're going to come and murder us, you know, murder our economy. But they're so smart. And so that's how American, I'm, I'm doing a cartoon version of American imperialism, but that's how it's, that's how it works in the Cold War era. We'll have to take you up on one point there, uh, Catherine, because air conditioning is really not a big factor amongst the Scottish professional elite, I have to say. Um, so many might not appreciate exactly what it is you're talking about there. <laughs> Sorry. You visited, okay. I know you have visited Scotland, so you'll appreciate what I'm on about. Um, but uh, um, I, what I did want to, I mean, I completely agree with you about like, um, I mean, all academics here and I work in higher education do have an, un, an, an unhealthy obsession with liberal America. They take all their metaphors increasingly from liberal America, even when they're completely inappropriate for assessing their own societies uh, for which they are part. Um, I recall um, Alex Hoculey in one of our interviews mentioning that in South Africa, uh, black South Africans have started referring to themselves as minorities, for instance, um, or at least the ones that have had a higher education have started to do so uh, purely on the basis that they learn everything from America, like, and that is increasingly part of the culture. One of the points I want to also maybe uh, pay a bit more attention to is the politics of some of this, because it seems to me that um, while all of what you're saying is true, I mean, particularly in a sort of high year of neoliberalism, that perhaps since 2008, um, what you've seen is an overproduction of graduates, right, and many of them pushed downwards, either into other parts of the economy, or for individuals such as myself, I'm in officially a post-doctorate position, but nonetheless, at the same time, I'm probably not paid that much more than an average worker in the economy. And so that level of differentiation is gone. Now, many of us who were initially optimistic about this scenario probably thought, well, many of these people are going to form unions, they're going to join the left. Um, and in a lot of ways, they did. But could you also talk about some of the potential drawbacks that have happened since then? Because as one person put it previously, we've seen them drawing together a bit economically, but it's also seen some processes of increased cultural differentiation, where younger elements of the PMC are increasingly determined to differentiate themselves from the working class on a cultural level. Um, that's a really good question, and it was one of the points that um, George and I disagreed on when I went on BungaCast because he saw things uh, sort of more from your point of view in which he saw saw this sort of, let's say, like a, an entire generation of young academics or academic, aspirational academics sort of facing the fact that there are no jobs or there are no um, good white collar jobs for them. There is no place for them in, in intelligentsia in the institutions that had you know previously um, nurtured the intelligentsia. 
And um, he thought that the doubling down on identity protocols would be the ways in which this class sought to distinguish itself from the working class. Because even though its prospects might be as poor as, a, as the working class now, um, it has to distinguish itself from um, people who make the same money that they do, but are, have no college degree. And, um, and I thought, you know, that's such a bleak image because I, I was hoping that when people um, see that there is so little reward for them to obey the sort of liberal and neoliberal ideologies of the class and they would find solidarity with each other and with the working classes, at least, and criticize capitalism in a more profoundly, you know, um, mobilizing way. And, um, you know, you've caught me at a weird time because I've just been like Twitter mobbed and Twitter hated, but um, I feel like, okay, so those people who are very online, they are the ones who are very aspirational and they, they will toe the line with regard to these um, cultural differentiations and distinctions that you were just mentioning, James. But on the other hand, the people who are not very online, the people who are emailing me, and this is just purely anecdotal, of course, or who are writing from all over the world are saying like, this is the feet that class is the category that they were missing from their own understanding of their alienation from work and their alienation from um, the labor processes and what they've seen um, happening around them. So on that level, I do feel like people are, there is a mass consciousness about what is happening. It's just not organized by a left. And then we have this cultural left that is ready to jump down your throat if you don't obey its protocols. And if you're a vulnerable, young, aspirational academic or want someone who wants to enter the liberal professions, as the Aaronites call the PMC's um, purview, then you're going to have to toe that line about all of these identity protocols in order to distinguish yourself from the non-college educated person. And it is a kind of, um, the, the kinds of thought conformity within the sort of aspirational class is partially enforced out of fear and partially enforced out of this like false consciousness identification. I mean, of course, I wish that there were like an easy solution to say, you know, wake up, like the 1920s or 30s left would say to the masses, like, wake up, wake up and stand up. But right now, um, there are the precariousness of middle class life and um, the lower echelons of the PMC make that very, very difficult. Um, Catherine, I want one of the one of the sympathetic readings that I've heard uh, from someone who read your book um, and liked it, but also had uh, some points that they wanted me uh, to raise. Um, I guess what their position was basically, well, of course, the PMC that you're talking about are probably the most annoying class. Um, they are the people who, uh, you know, when we look at what they're saying on social media and so on, uh, some of the virtue hoarding behavior that you've uh, spoken about, of course, that's very, you know, it's pesky, it's annoying, it's uh, a number of other things. But on the other hand, in terms of our overall analysis of society, the real enemy remains uh, capitalism, which is a different class entirely. 
um, in Scotland, it's largely an overseas uh, class uh, that owns and controls our assets. But they would argue that perhaps we should be focusing on what unifies. Potentially, I mean, I looked up the statistics and it's probably about a third of people work in either professional or managerial jobs in the United Kingdom. Um, so then we've got possibly another 60 uh, odd percent of people who are working class in one way or another, um, and in others we might be traditionally petty bourgeois and so on, right? So is the focus not on unifying that 99%? And if not, what is the need for critiquing this particular uh, professional fraction? Um, maybe you could talk a bit about um, the differentiations perhaps that happened in American politics with Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren and so on, because I know a lot of these debates were very live in America in a way that they weren't quite as live, I think, or as differentiated within the European left. Okay, so um, maybe I will talk about Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren perhaps um, at another moment, but I want to talk about Prince Harry and his joining a Silicon Valley startup called Better Up. And one of the things I want to say is that in the in the United States, at least, and I'm not sure about the UK, but the capitalists like Bill Gates, like Mark Zuckerberg, like Warren Buffett, they all, and even Jeff Bezos, they like to advertise their sort of puritanical PMC um, Horatio Alger stories. Like, I was just really hardworking and smart and I never spent a lot of money because that's like vulgar working class way of consuming. And that's how I made 500 gazillion dollars or 500 trillion dollars, whatever. So I would say that the capitalist class in the United States, especially since Silicon Valley has taken over the real obscene accumulation of wealth and hoarding of um, actual wealth, is... Um, a class that is actually incredibly deferential to PMC values. And that's why I wanted to say, I, let's take Prince Harry for a moment, like the woke prince. He needs to have a job. And he's entering a, what I think is a very professional managerial class situation where he um, better up is a coaching firm that um, is online and motivates workers, right? And it's supposed to be like therapeutic and matches you up with the coach. Coaching is a completely business-oriented way to motivate white-collar workers who are depressed and anxious. And this is the kind of organization that your aristocrat, a young man who should just go and spend his ill-gotten wealth in silence somewhere in a moldy castle, perhaps in Scotland, and stay the fuck out of our view, has actually now is now participating in a PMC-dominated culture industry. So that's why we need to criticize its values. That's why we need to isolate its values because it is a new ruling class. Because even the even European aristocrats have to assume have to get jobs and assume its values. I don't know how this happened, but um, you know, in the olden days, in the olden days in sort of industrial capitalism, you had these um, you know decadent wealthy. Um, um, over-consumptive people who, you know, um, showed no restraint in their appetites or something. And today we have these, like, lean, mean, you know, um, puritanical, ascetic types who are, you know, demonstrating the proper use of capital and the proper use of time. How about that one? How about that one, James? 
That is very, I mean, I guess it's a point we actually discussed or David discussed in the previous podcast because, uh, like, what that, I think, signifies in terms of Prince Harry, I don't know why we keep coming back to Prince Harry on these podcasts, but it just, uh, Meghan Markle just keeps coming up. I don't know what it is, right? But um, I think in your previous interview with uh, Darren McGarvey, who's a sort of Scottish public intellectual who talks a lot about class, um, we're talking about the fact that in the olden days, um, the middle class of this country would have aspired to be like the British royalty, like or like the British aristocracy with the country pad and you know the Labrador and uh, the barber jacket and all these types of things. Nowadays, the British aristocracy and the British even royal family aspires to be a Silicon Valley sort of uh, PMC worshipping type elite, as you say. Um, Case in point, then. Case in point. I mean, now you have the British aristocracy aspiring to be like an un- a disruptor and a PMC entrepreneur. So, yeah, I wanted to ask um, about this, about ideological production, basically. So um, on the one hand, uh, you know, obviously the middle class are kind of a, a class of cultural producers, and they obviously have a wide in, in, ideological influence over society. But really, since the Second World War, um, the ruling elite um, has kind of moved into this ideological mode of liberal humanitarianism. Now, obviously, the ideas that emerge from kind of left-wing parts of the PMC are, can be more eccentric than that, perhaps, you know, can be more kind of minoritarian and stuff like that. But aren't isn't the PMC reflecting ruling class ideology more than it is simply, um, you know, it, it hasn't so much colonized the ruling elite as the ruling elite has has ideologically colonized parts of the middle class who once who might once have had more ideological independence from the capitalist system and who might therefore have aligned themselves with the working class. That's traditionally how parts of the intelligentsia have operated. Um, you know, in, in the kind of Marxist movement and so on. Whereas now what's happening is that that ethos, that general ethos has taken on a specific form. The general ethos of liberalism, pro-capitalist liberalism, has taken on a specific form in layers of middle class who would once have been more resistant. Okay, um, that's a very good question. And I'm going to just give you a historical answer and then a conceptual theoretical answer, okay? So um, when worker unrest was really um, boiling over at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, with, um, you know, bloody strikes being put down by um, railroad companies and steel companies, the, you had this emergent class of um, maybe like media producers, like journalists or um, professors who were a very small part of the American population, but they saw the depredations of the robber baron capitalism that um, were exercised in the United States. And people like John Dewey, people like Jane Addams, who were part of this middle class intelligentsia and who really inaugurated the progressive era in the United States, really aligned themselves with working class struggles. But I think that was a moment when there was so much real fear of um, social chaos and the working class was much more powerful because it operated in solidarity with each other and created like a, a massive sense of um, social crisis. And so what you have then is with Jane Addams, the invention of social work in Chicago with their settlement house, and with John Dewey, the invention of tenure and academic freedom within higher education so that 
um, researchers were not beholden to, you know, mediocre and Philistine funders of the U.S. university system. Um, But I would say that at that moment, that um, progressive moment of the emergent PMC has to do with their um, fear of social chaos and a working class rebellion. Um, In the during the Great Depression, there was also this massive um, sense of social chaos. Capitalism has been in crisis, you know, for many decades now by the the end of the um, Second World War. But when you have this massive expansion of the class, the class is rewarded by the um, capitalists, if you like, by the ruling elites, by expanding the university system, rewarding doctors and credentialed elites. You have the co-optation, if you like, of the PMC by um, the ruling classes. And so then you have this exchange of um, interests that take place with as the PMC becomes more and more conservative, even though during the 60s it thought it was being very radical, but it was fighting like a culture war against the working class and hoping to overturn Americans' cultural turpitude. And this is actually what the Ehrenreichs were um, condemning and defining was the sort of PMC takeover of left progressive spaces after 68. Um, the If you want to, you know, think conspiratorially for a moment, the capitalists realized by the end of the Second World War that it would be much better for them to reward um, a progressive class enlisted in a fight against communism. The Cold War is really important at that point. And um, then you have disillusioned members of the class, you know, who um, were communists in the 20s and 30s. They're, ex- they're um, oppressed by McCarthyism, but they're also confronting the Stalin, the Stalin legacy in the 50s. And you have the whole, the elites of, you know, the New York intellectuals moving from the left to the right. During this period of time when you have sort of, and it's sort of overdetermined, you have um, both the expansion of the PMC, it's more copious rewards by a um, capitalist ruling elite that wants to um, stabilize the American social body. And then you have this deep disillusionment with what has happened in the Soviet Union. You have the hardening of positions in the Cold War. And I would say like the Cold War creates like all of these powerful instruments whereby the um, ruling elite can buy the PMC, think tanks, universities, the media, private foundations. Today we know NGOs. All of that, um, um, all of that becomes massively corrupting to a class that did not have to align itself with the interests of the ruling elite. I just wanted to ask, uh, Catherine, I mean, one of the things I tremendously enjoyed uh, about the book was the refreshing uh, slaughter of sacred cows. Um, and one in particular was the Occupy movement came in for some stick uh, during your book, um, as did many other fringes of the far left that has emerged over the years. Now, the interesting thing for me about that is, obviously, we often saw these things initially as being seeds of a new working class type of politics, the 99%, all this sort of stuff. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you think might have went wrong, like, and what lessons might be learned for socialists in the future? Well, Occupy really um, represented, I mean, something that you evoked earlier, which was, you know, the younger um, college-educated people who, and intelligentsia who 
were dropping out of this very copiously rewarded class you know, that I had described and um, facing sort of stark economic um, um, a stark economic future and the creation of solidarity that could be possible thereof. But um, I think in the end, you have to... I have to admit that this class is so corrupted that the college education that we receive, the acculturation into this class is so deeply corrupt in the United States that if you have a movement that is led by college-educated progressive elites who are trained in this language, that movement will not become a mass movement. It will not be, it will not understand solidarity as such. Bernie Sanders, um, uniquely is not does not represent that kind of person but he was able to create a coalition but he did not ever um uh, you know pay fealty to this language in which we are initial this language of pluralism a language of um multicultural diversity that was really imposed upon us during the 90s when um, Bill Clinton was cutting the social welfare system, but also promoting multiculturalism with the other hand. And Sanders represented someone who didn't do that. So I have no hope for this class as any kind of leader within um, left progressive um, movements. You know, this is why the only thing we can do is sort of um, isolate its tendencies in order to dissolve its ideological hold on us. The other thing I was going to say to um, David's question earlier was that the PMC now operates as an incredible engine of ideological production to justify inequality and stratification. And part of that has to do with its very identity because it's like we went to college. We're special. Like we learned this. So um, we may not have as much money as we want to, but we're just different from normal Americans. There's this hatred of the masses that is actually like more in alignment with um, right-wing um, right-wing cultural critics like Ortega y Gasset in the early in the interwar period in Europe. There were all these right-wing intellectuals who just had like. Um, deep contempt for ordinary people, for working class people. And I think there's there's that in in spades within this class. Like and it's part of this its cultural revolution that it feels like it successfully prosecuted in the sixties. I, I I think it's um it's interesting how extreme this has become in the United States because uh, you always think, you know, that what goes on in California and America will be with us in, you know, a decade or less. Um, I don't know if people in the British left, for example, know that a lot of the kind of civil rights um, movement, legacy organizations, uh, that a lot of kind of um, kind of PMC kind of what, what appears to be kind of the ultra left parts of, of academia in America, for example, backed um, Proposition 22 in California where you live, like, I didn't know about this until I heard about it on a left-wing podcast. A lot of the people, like, the language of intersectionality and so on was used to to back Proposition 22, which was a piece of legislation that basically made it easier to um, <clears throat> to exploit kind of Uber-type workers, platform workers. Um, and they said things like, well, um, Black families like the... Uh, labor flexibility that comes along with this. So they use the language of intersectionality to say, you don't understand black culture. Black people like these looser um, regulations on, on labor. I, that blew my mind 
that I mean, I did not understand how extreme this had become. That there are now forms of kind of like racial essentialism that are being used directly to attack the working class. I had no idea of that. I don't know that specific example, but, you know, there were, um, I knew people who were organizing against Prop 22, like for the rights of um, gig workers to be defined as workers, right? Mm. So um, they were up against Uber, they were up against Lyft, they were up against, you know, this multi-million dollar campaign to misinform Californians about what it meant. And one of the things that they were able, one of the things that Uber and the Silicon Valley types were able to um, put out there in the um, general population was that um, Uber drivers like to be contractors because it allows them to be more entrepreneurial. And this many Uber drivers voted for um, um, Prop 22, I guess. So what happened was they on the app during this period of time when the proposition was being debated if you accepted a ride from uber you had to also press a button that said you know i like prop 22. so that's how they got the numbers to say um oh even our drivers like this so this language that you would rather be an entrepreneur rather than a worker was something that they were um that they had extracted out of this log algorithmic interface that was oppressing their, their drivers to begin with. And so um, a lot of like Californians weren't paying much attention or who thought of themselves as progressive would say, would see this and think, oh yeah, this is a worker supported um, proposition. So I'm going to vote for, I'm going to vote for it. And um, what happened was, um, there's something really wrong, I think, also with this like general with this populist mode in California of having referenda like this. Like if you gather enough signatures, you can have a referendum. If you have enough, it actually just helps people with a lot of money because if you can campaign and distort the decision making process, then you can promote this kind of um, consensus that is just about your having marketed this idea correctly. I know that. In the UK, for instance, Uber drivers are now have to be classified as workers. That's the only way you can go up against these people. It's the only way. And the, um, the whole idea of being an entrepreneur and driving your car is risible because it shows that after expenses, waiting, all this other stuff, Uber drivers actually make almost less than minimum wage. And it's because they have no other options with regard to stable employment that they're doing this job. I mean, it makes things really good if you're riding Uber as a consumer of, of um, the service. But um, but yeah, that, that I did not know about the sort of racialization of the rationale. But yeah, things are, you know, it is very extreme. And I do think it is going to be exported. And I do think like the most craven aspects of the um, um, European politician or the UK politician, the most craven of them are getting ready to adopt this language. Um, just wanted to come back to a previous point uh, you made because you made a critique of some of these forms of politics as uh, being rooted, and I would agree, in elements of right-wing uh, philosophy, essentialism, uh, probably a degree of like the postmodern critique of Marxism and many of these other things. Um, but on the other hand, it's probably a relatively common critique of your own work, and I'm sure we've all had this critique at some point or other, that there is a degree of what's been called class reductionism 
um, and that this itself uh, lends itself to right-wing conclusions. Um, I'm sure it's a critique you've already heard. Um, how do you feel about it? Class reductionism? Um, the I say more class reductionism. <laughs> no, okay. So once again, I want to ground this in some in a, in a um, you know concrete examples. I, I don't know if you've read um, Jefferson Cowie's book uh, "Staying Alive: The Last Days of the American Working Class." In it, he documents the fact that during the um, 60s and 70s, unions within themselves were fighting for the questions of identity, racism, representation, um, misogyny, and that there were all these unions who were actually, um, there was a union um, leader, he opens the book with this example of a union leader in um, United Mine Workers Union who did represent this more like, um, um, enlightened um, view of identity of women, of minorities, and he was assassinated. His entire family was assassinated by um, the UAW establishment. We don't hear about these kind of interunion struggles, and the unions were never able to um, um, realize an organic diversity because of the ways in which um, their power structure had been monopolized by these really thuggish, mafiosish types who um, dominated. And so today, some of the most progressive unions with regard to um, identity are female-dominated unions, like the National Nurses Union or the Flight Attendants Union. And there you have this very organic, coming out of workerism, an idea of the need to recognize um, gender discrimination or racial discrimination within unions themselves and to sort of have that process worked out within the union itself. Um, this kind of judging of the working class is something that the PMC loves to do, and it loves to judge the working class as somewhat as backward and reactionary and racist and everything else. So I do feel like we need more class analysis of identity politics or identity protocols itself. We need more um, class analysis of what happens in the struggle for union representation and unionization. I mean, I don't feel like we have enough class analysis. So I don't understand, like when people say class reductionist, I, my counter to that would be that class is a completely different category from gender and race and um, gender identity. It, it trumps all of them because the difference between the working class woman and the PMC woman is absolute and the difference between is and but it's also universalized and transformed and can be translated into the difference between the the working class african-american man and the pmc african-american man i am um, I mean? yeah i i i uh, i mean it's a it's a bold thing to say in the current political climate that you think that class is the primary um you know element of 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 ca the capitalist configuration I mean, there was an argument, I, I mean, I'm not in the uh, academic sector, but I did see an argument where the leader of the UCU union um, in Britain, which is the like, largest academic union, um, said that anyone who thinks that class is the primary distinction uh, in society shouldn't be in the union and shouldn't be in the, the trade union movement, which, I mean, I did sort of think to myself, well, even if you think that it's wrong to assert that class has a has the central place in social analysis, it's probably not good for a trade union leader to say if you think that you shouldn't be in the union. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, exactly. That's what what is one what was once quite a, obviously the widespread view on the Marxist inflected left is now considered quite a taboo um, comment. I mean, the opening page of the Communist Manifesto, the history of all hitherto existing societies, the history of class struggle. That's now a very controversial, uh, base, you know, analysis on uh, on the left. Um, but I wanted to ask about another aspect of what I see as kind of mass contemporary ideology and how it relates to the PMC. One of the things that I find about contemporary politics, and maybe this is a wider phenomenon, maybe you can't just make this all about the class elements who engage in this behavior. One of the most interesting elements of contemporary ideology is the sheer paranoia that accompanies politics. Now, on the right, that's obvious, you know, but it's been there for quite a long time. Paranoia is often a political mood on the right. So, you know, evangelicals around Trump and stuff were saying things like, if Trump loses this election, America belongs to the devil, right? But we're kind of used to that on the right. But you also had that echoed on the broad left a lot. So obviously in America in January this year, there was uh, a mob of protesters who refused to accept the outcome of the election and attacked the Capitol and it was spectacular and appalling uh, and all that. But the, this instant consensus emerged. And to me, it was perhaps one of the strangest things that I've ever witnessed in politics. I was watching the coverage on BBC News 24, which is, of course, the most mainstream dominant kind of broadcaster in, in Britain. It's the official sensible line uh, of society. And they were saying, uh, the American correspondent on the BBC was saying, this is the launch of a second American civil war. Right. What we're witnessing is an attempt to overthrow American democracy and establish a dictatorship. I mean, that is how serious the language was. And I remember watching it thinking, you know, I'm a left wing person. I've been on lots of stupid demonstrations that, <laughs> that you know, well, and fun demonstrations that they weren't. I mean, one or two of them were quite stupid, but I've occupied university buildings and, you know, all this kind of stuff. I know what that craziness is that's happening right that right now. This is not an insurrection to overthrow history's most powerful state. But on the kind of PMC ideologically inflected left, this became an absolute certainty that we had just witnessed a fascist, attempted fascist seizure of power in, in the heartlands of the world system. But this is everywhere, this attitude. Brexit, for example, could have been viewed as a relatively common or garden global political development. I mean, Britain was once not in the European Union. Other countries in Europe aren't in the European Union. It's actually not that spectacular. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it, you know, it was an interesting world historic development, but um, this idea quickly, I mean, some liberals in, in Britain refer to Britain now as rainy fascism island, you know, and there's this whole culture of identifying everything as kind of um, authoritarian or fascist or, uh, you know, or a seizure of power by some shadowy corporate elite and, and so on. Is this related to, again, the influence of middle strata in society? Because if you look at the history of the 20th century, um, it's often been when middle class regimes came to power, for example, in parts of the, the third world or the underdeveloped world, whatever you want to call it, the middle class character of the leadership of those states was often what led to violence because they felt endangered by much more powerful social forces. Is it that, is it being trapped between capital and larger elements of the population like the working class that creates this mood of paranoia? 
that's a really interesting analysis that the sort of um, PMC would have this fear of the working class and and fear and a feeling of powerlessness with regard to capital, um, and that pro- provides the mood of um, paranoia in politics that comes from like the liberal center even, um, which was supposed to be moderate and sensible and rational. So what you're saying is that there's a kind of irrationality that has taken over politics on both sides of this political spectrum. Um, One of the things that I think about this particular form of irrationality has to do with, um, I think, the PMC's desperate need to legitimize itself as um, the proper lackeys and servants of the ruling class. So what you have is this idea that there are improper Americans, they are fascist, they are intolerant. We have the most tolerant and the most democratic view and anyone who disagrees with us is actually, you know, evil and iniquitous and this is part of the whole cancel culture stuff. So but um this lip the the present form of this kind of liberal hysteria actually has given up on even the values of high liberalism, which has to do with tolerance of disagreement, because it's seen, it's so horrified by um, its political other that it has to demonize its political other. And that happens on the right as well. So from a very like critical theory, like Frankfurt School point of view, I would say that this has to do with just the eruption of irrationality in the deepest incompatible couple that we've seen in the pol- in the politics of our times, capitalism and democracy, or American style capitalism and, dem- and its ideals of democracy. Like that's actually incompatible at this point now, because of the depredations of um, the U.S. style capitalism, and um, this liberal elite still wants to, you know, monopolize um, sort of sensible, centrist, you know, just democratic values. It knows that they are under attack from the top, but it construes that attack as coming from the bottom, and that is just the deepest form of irrationality. And then it styles itself. And this is a this is a something I think comes from my sense of like really, really not participating in Christendom or in Judeo Christianity at all. And having this point of view completely outside of this system. And I see them as crypto Christians, crypto um, Puritans, even though they are horrified by evangelicals, the vanguard element of the PMC really sees itself as deeply virtuous, and everyone else is smeared by sin. I mean, this is, you gave us, you know, um, the Scots gave us this particular form of um, Calvinism and capitalism, so thank you, Scotland, but um, it is vicious, because it justifies like um, wealth as a form of grace. It justifies power as a form of virtue. And it is so deeply irrational, so deeply ideological. And the more it holds on to that irrationality, the more capable it is of re- reproducing the um, um, the ideology of the hegemon.
I guess we should take this opportunity to apologise on behalf of Scotland. Uh, you know, maybe we owe the world reparations or something. I don't know. Like, please, uh, please, because <laughs> problems of virtue we have imposed. Um, but what I was going to say in terms of what I mean, and this is probably reflecting some of your own interests. And clearly, there has been a major shift in terms of the way that the PMC uh, thinks and views the world. Because certainly, when I was uh, first at university, the dominant uh, creed was postmodernism if you were in culture, or it was sort of a sort of scientific, technical type view of the world. Um, and liberalism was very, relatively open, right? Um, so the classical liberal was all about tolerance and like listening to a diversity of views and a sort of ironic spirit, you know what I mean? Like, which was there in postmodernism as well. Like, um, you didn't want to take any definite moral positions on everything. You wanted to be ambivalent and ambiguous all the time and so on. Um, and what's really developed, I think, and it is does seem to me this has been mostly since 2008, is this more moralized and hysterical aspect um, to liberalism? And also, as David and yourself have both pointed out, a tendency towards conspiracy theories. I mean, probably best epitomized by Russiagate um, in America, but I think the tendency towards conspiratorial thinking is there amongst the entire elite. My own interpretation of that is that it's to do with having less purchase on the world um, and having like less political sway because I guess if you were a centrist liberal in the 1990s and 2000s, it always seemed like everything was always going your way and everything was always going to get better and globalization was always going to make us richer. And you had the ideas and all the people in the past were an idiot and uh, we had discovered the way. It was the end of history, as everyone used to say. Um, and it's that deep uncertainty that comes after that moment that they just have not been able to handle. But I think you're right in terms of the fact that their primary reflection of that, even though in a sense that they know this is untrue, they do tend to blame the masses like, and to try and differentiate themselves from the masses, even though they know this is uh, alienated, irrational forces are coming from in reality, not just the ruling elite, but more the forces that the ruling elite actually represent, the forces of capital and uh, so on, uh, trying anything it can to try and turn a profit in an era where profits have been diminishing and the sources of potential, you know, I mean, capitalism is, uh, apart from anything else, I mean, regardless of its evils and its moral feelings and all these other things, it's slowing down. Uh, it's not as innovative as it was and... Um, it's not going to guarantee, therefore, a successful political order, as you say. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I wanted to add another thing about this particular paranoia and irrationality, especially with regard to the masses or the working class or even the concept of class in general, is that one of the things I really like do not appreciate about um, left liberal attitudes about um organizing or politics in general is that they're always innovating on some level some kind of lesson like gender studies or postmodern studies that they need to teach the working class they, they the working class doesn't need postmodernism it doesn't need Judith Butler you know and I feel like but the, the and they're they're like really into listening that's like a very like PMC thing managerial thing to say now like if you have a um a racist incident in your school or in your university you're like listening and I'm just like 
you guys should listen to people more. Just STFU and actually listen. And I and I don't feel like they're they're capable of it. And I don't really have like you guys have a much more global view of this, maybe more um, Olympian. But right now, I feel like I'm just in the trenches, and I and I I just want to fight them on these levels because I I feel like the political impasse that you just described, James, is um is not going to be solved until we can dispel the the um illusion the spell that they've cast over us. I mean, one of the things about what you're saying there is clearly there's always this idea that, well, the working class is out there and we should listen to them because they're victims. But on the other hand, we have to be a bit cautious about this because the working class is inherently bigoted like um, and has all these different uh, problematic attitudes and so on and so forth. And as you're saying, part of what is uh, hidden in that whole analysis is that throughout much of the 19th and 20th century, the working class was always the vanguard of any progressive cause that you care to name from anti-racism to uh, votes for women to whatever it happens to be like and these traditions emerged very often autonomously from the working class itself and a lot of this stuff sort of gets hidden in this whole approach to politics well what i wanted to emphasize about the pmc is that they're deeply deeply ahistorical and i think i wrote this in the book they really feel like they're the most enlightened people who ever existed on the planet they eat in the most enlightened way they raise their children in the most enlightened way they have sex in the most enlightened way everyone who comes before them is full of moral turpitude everyone who is not of their class is iniquitous and um that's the thing that, you know, keeps me thinking we've got to be more focused on the class um, formations and all of these discourses. Yeah, well, thanks for that. It's a really great uh, conversation. We could probably talk about it for uh, for hours. I mean, um, I think you say in your book, you know, that it's a, it's a provocation. You know, you're making an intervention. It's not a totally worked out scientific study of how all this stuff fits together, but it's an argument that, that someone needs to start the ball rolling on. And, and I think you've, you've given that a really good punt. So just finally, I mean, what do you, what do you think the future of this argument is? Um, how do we how do we cut through some of these uh, these problems and 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 access a new kind of class analysis that can that can break the left out of its kind of ghettos and so on? Well, one thing I hope for is that the the rest of the world is less beholden to this vision of the world, the PMC, the American PMC vision, and that there can be true a truly dissenting point of view. I'll tell you among my students who really can understand and identify with class analysis are actually my students from the People's Republic of China. Now we hear PRC, they're so totalitarian, they're um, also they're capitalists, but they're state capitalists and they don't um, know what they're doing and they just want to take us over and there's all this paranoia and irrationality about um, um, Chinese, you know, the Chinese economy, the Chinese student. But I'll tell you something that gives me perhaps different, like more hope is that I'm, you know, educating a lot of these upper middle class, middle class kids who their parents send out to the United States to study. And um, they are so open. I would say like there's a core of, they, they've obviously heard class analysis very much, but they're surprised, they're open, they're completely mobilized by this idea that we can talk about class within 
um, a context that isn't the official Chinese Communist Party sanctioned context, but they totally recognize the language. They are not burdened by all of this like global pluralism or postmodernism. They understand what is happening. They understand what happened to China, the class divisions, the rural um, urban divide. And, um, and, you know, that to me is very, very hopeful. Uh, they also make up like 1.3 million people. Um, I hear that there are more people in the Chinese Communist Party than in the British Isles. You know, I'm not sure if that statistic is correct. Obviously, there are a lot of problems with the Chinese regime. And, um, and yet, here is um, a group of people who haven't been inculcated by this anti-class rhetoric and for whom this um, analysis resonates. Now, with, within the UK, the Anglo-American context, I feel like um, there are more people now who are emboldened to criticize the PMC worldview. And this gives me great hope in some ways, although I probably like too much of a Pollyanna because I do live in California, and I should probably adopt the more pessimistic point of view that George Hoare adopts. But for now, I just feel like as an ethical, in an ethical position, I feel like there are always going to be more working class people than PMC people. There's always going to be alienation. The commodity is a universal form. Exploitation is totalizing. And therefore, because we're right, we're, we just have to keep insisting upon this. And the arc of history will bend this way, perhaps with results that we do not like, as in you know the election of Trump. But it still is a um, sign of the rejection of a mass rejection of PMC values in 2016. I mean, it was devastating and terrible for many reasons. But if Hillary Clinton had won, I would have felt like you know the 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 liberal. Um, utopia that James, you described of the 1990s or dystopia, if you like, of the 1990s had been fully realized and that we were truly living under a world where there was going to be no room for dissent. And I think the same thing happened with Brexit. It's like, you guys think you rule the world. You think centrists rule the world. Well, actually they don't. Catherine, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, could you tell everyone how to get access to your book? Um, it, you can buy it at the University of Minnesota Press um, website. It is also um, open access and available on the Manifold website. Fantastic. Thanks very much for that, Catherine. And thanks very much, James, uh, for joining me uh, for this podcast. And to all our listeners, uh, stay tuned for some, uh, for some more guests uh, and from, for uh, election reportage. Uh, from Kat. Um, but yeah, thanks very much.